Well, good morning. Last week, we began a sermon series on the drama of Scripture. We're taking two weeks each on the four acts of this drama. We're going to talk about creation, fall, uh, redemption, and then uh, restoration. And here's a way to think about the, the importance of this series. We're really basically going for the plot of the Bible. And so here's a question. How many of you have read the novel War and Peace? We had one lone guy in the first service. Oh, it's above average. So we got about five people. Uh, so for the rest of you, besides these people, uh, exceptional people, let's say I handed you War and Peace, and you don't know the plot, you don't know the characters, and I said, I want you to turn to page 300 and read the second paragraph. Well, it would be incomprehensible. If you don't know the plot, you don't know the characters, it would just, just be uh, opaque to you. And that's the way a lot of us read the Bible. We, we open it up. We don't know the plot. We don't know the characters. You read a random command from Leviticus, and you're like, what is going on here? And so the goal of this series is to help us understand the plot of the Bible so that we understand who God is and how we relate to him, and ultimately, so we understand our place in the drama in the drama of history, our place in the biblical story. Today's message is part two of our discussion of creation, which is the first act in the drama of Scripture. And last week, we saw three things from Genesis 1. We saw that God is the creator of everything and everyone. We saw that after God created, he pronounced everything very good. And then we saw that humanity is the crown of God's creation. And so if you weren't here last week, we'd encourage you to watch or listen to the podcast from our website. Today we're going to consider Genesis 2, which is really a complementary account to the creation account in Genesis 1, and uh, it expands on the creation of the man and the woman. And we're going to notice three prominent details in this, in this uh, account. And as we consider each of these, I want to draw out some of the implications uh, for us in our lives. The first observation is this, is just God's assignment to the man to cultivate and keep the garden. In verse 4, we have the first mention of the personal name for God. It's the name Yahweh. It's usually translated Lord, but that was the, the personal name of God. It was revealed to Israel. And so when you read the, the book of Genesis and the Pentateuch, the thing you realize is that the God of Israel, Jehovah, Yahweh, is also the creator of everything and everyone. So that's, that's a staggering truth. But we read this beginning in verse four. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. And then verse 7 gives a brief account of the creation of the man. He said, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And so the term for formed there is the common term used of a potter forming a lump of clay. And so uh, here God is depict as a, depicted as a potter fashioning or forming man out of the dust. And later biblical writers will refer back to this and, and use this imagery of God as the potter and we are the clay. 
Isaiah uh, 64, for example, and, and the point of this is that God, if he's really is the potter, he has all authority, not only over Israel, but over all of humanity. Isaiah 64, 8, for example, but now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, you are our potter. All of us are the work of your hand. Beginning in verse 8, we have a description of the Garden of Eden, and the word Eden simply means delight. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. And so immediately, you know, there's a lot going on here. There's already geography. There's already directions. And so this was written many generations later from the point of view of the land, the promised land. So there was this garden in the, toward the east in Eden, and there God placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also is in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Evil. So God was providing everything Adam would need. And he points out two specific trees in this garden, uh, trees that will be mentioned repeatedly in chapter two and chapter three. One was the tree of life, and the second was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the specific nature of those trees will, will be unveiled, it will unfold as we go through the text. But as we read beginning in verse 10, we we see as one commentator pointed out that the Garden of Eden is a lot more like a national park than a backyard garden. There's trees of every kind. There are rivers. There are mineral deposits in this garden. So verse 10, now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. The delium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. And then we come to verse 15, and God gives this specific assignment to the man. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And so this is a significant point. This is before the fall. This is before sin has contaminated the whole world. God gives him an assignment. Essentially, God gives him work. And for us, as you pay attention to this, think about your work, and work is the main thing you do every week, whether you get paid for it or not. If you're a student, your work is to study and learn. If you're at home raising children, that's your work. Uh, Your work may involve your hands. It may be intellectual work. Whatever your work is, that's the main thing you do. But there was meaningful work before the fall, and so God did not design the man to be idle and unproductive. Work is not a curse. Work is an expression of being created in the image of God. Remember for chapter one, God worked. He worked for six days. He took this land that was formless and void, this world that was formless and void, and he fashioned it into something that was very good. And so created in the image of of God, this man is gonna take this world that was created very good, and he's going to cultivate it. He's going to work it. He's going to make it more productive. He's going to employ his, his powers of, of uh, uh, imagination and creativity and work the land. Remember the fourth commandment in Exodus 20. Uh, God not only commanded Israel to rest on the seventh day. You remember what he commanded before they were to rest? 
work six days. And so in that way, in their working and in their resting, they would imitate God in creation. And so the first man's uh, work, it, uh, it primarily involved agriculture. Uh, he was put in the Garden of Eden first to cultivate it. And Moses used a word that could be used for a lot of things. It was used to, to cultivate or work or serve. It was even used of worship. And so in some ways, the, the Garden of Eden anticipates the tabernacle and the temple, which was a place where people served God by worshiping him. Uh, but the most immediate meaning is that of cultivating the garden. He was to take the raw materials of the garden and improve it, making it an even more beautiful, more productive place. And so isn't that an interesting uh, fact that in its pristine condition before sin, the garden still needed to be cultivated, still needed to be worked. Even though God's creation was very good, there was a role for the man to develop it and improve it. And so in fellowship with God, this was to be a delightful thing. And uh, we'll talk about the fall next week. And work has changed. Work is not always a delightful thing anymore, right? But in, in, in this case, it was to be a delightful thing, working with the God who created everything good. And so it uses his God-given abilities for agriculture and landscaping and artistic expression. And so this is a foundational verse that establishes the goodness of work, the dignity of work. And second, he was to keep or guard the garden so that it was safe. As we'll see next week, there was an adversary. There was a threat to God's design for creation. And we're actually going to explore the theology of work more fully after the first of the year. We're going to have a, uh, have a sermon series on work. Uh, and, and we'll see that it's dramatically affected by the fall. But that doesn't mean that work is part of the curse. Significantly, when Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden, they were given this command to cultivate the land, uh, suggesting that this basic assignment still remains. And so, but our point for today and in this series is, is, is this, since work is the main thing we do each week, whether you get paid for it or not, since work is the main thing we do, we have to understand how it fits in the drama of scripture, how it fits into the, the biblical story so that we'll understand the role that our work plays in our lives. As image bearers, our work is meant to be an expression of the image of God. I don't know how many of you follow the story of Jeffrey Owens the, the past few weeks. He is one of the, he played Elwin on the Cosby show. And uh, a few weeks ago, somebody noticed him. He was working in a grocery store. He was working in a Trader Joe's in, uh, I think it was in New Jersey. And somebody noticed him. That's Elwin. They snapped a picture of him, posted it on social media, and made all these comments about, he used to be famous, he used to make all this money, now he's working at Trader Joe's. And there were all these comments about his appearance. And uh, that's what they called job shaming. And a lot of people came to his, his defense. But what I like the most is what Jeffrey Owens himself said. In an interview, he talked about, he reflected on this experience and this is what he said. He said, I hope this experience will reshape what it means to work, the honor of the working person, and the dignity of work. He said, I hope for a reevaluation of what it means to work and the idea that some jobs are better than others. That is actually not true. 
there's no job that's better than another job. It might pay better, it might have better benefits, it might look better on a resume, but actually it's not better. Every job is worthwhile and valuable. And so I have no idea if Jeffrey Owens is a follower of Christ, but he absolutely nailed it. That's the biblical ethic of work. That, that mirrors what the scripture teaches about work. That work has dignity. It's not a necessary evil. It is not the case that idleness and being unproductive is far superior. No, that, that is not a good condition. Again, whatever stage of life you're in, that, that is not a preferable condition. And so whether your work is raising kids or working with your hands or you do intellectual work or whether you're in a stage of life where your main work is volunteering or, or helping other people in, in different ways, Uh, Your work is meant to be an expression of being created in the image of God. And so if we're going to find our place in the biblical story, we have to believe that. We have to do our work heartily unto the Lord, understanding that we were created to work. Second, God's command to the man. He said, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we see in verses 16 and 17, God gave a very specific command to uh, Adam. And as the creator, God had every right to give this command, to put this limitation on him. He had every right to give a command such as this one. And and pay attention to this, because if we're going to find our place in God's story, we're going to have to accept the commands he gives us, the limitations he puts on us. The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. And I love Craig's, Craig Barnes' comment on this, this verse. He said, we were created hungry and the whole world is our food except for one tree. That's it. They was created. They were created hungry, and the whole world except this one tree. They could eat from any tree. They could eat from the tree of life. The only tree that was forbidden was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we'll see next week that that when you eat from that tree, your eyes are open, and you know things. You understand things that you're not able to bear. In a sense, you become like God in a way that you shouldn't be like God. You begin take, making ethical uh, distinctions. You begin to make ethical designations. Instead of saying, okay, God says it's not good for me to eat, I believe him. You say, actually, I think there are other things God said that, that I think are not right. And we begin to make ethical determinations of what is good and evil. And the penalty was this, for in the day you eat from it, you will surely die. And that's the statement that the serpent will challenge in chapter 3. The serpent said, you will surely not die. The serpent's accusation is God's lying to you. Actually, God's holding out on you. God's telling you that because he doesn't want you to experience the best that you can be. And so every temptation we experience is a variation of that. And uh, next week, we'll talk about the nature of the death that took place on that day. It wasn't primarily physical death. They didn't drop over, fall over dead. There was another type of death that they experienced. But this verse flags a critical issue for you and me if we want to find ourselves in the biblical story. And if we want to actually participate with God in this world, we have to accept and believe that God has every right to give us commands, God has every right to put limitations on us. 
We have to believe it and accept it. And, and we need to, need to get to the place where we believe in the deepest part of our souls that those commands, those limitations are good. Just like God spoke, he created, and it was very good. In the same way, when he speaks commands, when he puts limitations on us, those are also very good. And so in the Garden of Eden, the first couple needed only one command. After the fall, which we'll discuss the next two weeks, sin affected everyone and everything, and the commands multiplied. If you read the Ten Commandments, what those commandments are, they are a description of a life of wholeness. There's all sorts of limitations. They're mostly, mostly what we, sh- we shall not do. But if you read those, they describe a life of wholeness. They de- life, describe a life of shalom, of, of peace. And so it's a life of honoring God as our creator. It's a life of not dishonoring other people created in the image of God by lying and stealing and coveting what they have. Uh, it's a life of, of imitating God by working six days and remembering to rest one day. And so I would ask you as you process this, as you think about the commands that you find the most difficult, or maybe there are actually some commands in the scriptures that you find unreasonable, and you think, actually, I'm not sure that command is good or very good for me. Uh, can you identify those? Once you identified those, you need to, th- that will give you a clue of where you need to meet with God, what you need to work through to come to the place where you don't merely grit your teeth and try to obey those commands even though you really rather live a different way, but actually where you come to the place where you say, no, no, those commands are good. They're actually the best for me because God is good. He knows what's best for me. And so I believe him. He's my creator. This is his design. He has every right to limit me. And when he does, it's for my good and for his glory. Well, the third thing I want us to observe is just how God provided a helper that was suitable for the man. And uh, these verses complement the account in Genesis 1 of God creating humanity, male and female. And uh, they go back to and explain more the relationship between the man and the woman. And so it's a striking thing. When you read through Genesis 1, we see seven times God saw what he created and it was good, it was good, it was good, it was very good. And so it's a shocking thing when we come to Genesis 2, 18, God pronounces something not good, okay? And what was not good? Adam's aloneness. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. We talked about this about a month and a half ago when we were talking about marriage. But in the Bible, a helper is not somebody, it's not like your assistant. It's not like Gilligan. You can get this person to do the things that you don't want to do yourself. In the Bible, a helper is someone who does things for you that you cannot do for yourself. And actually, God is called our helper. In, uh, in Psalm 54, 4, David declares, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. So whatever it means for the woman to be a helper, it doesn't mean that she's inferior because God is our helper. If you need a helper, it means you have deficiencies. And so Adam had no suitable helper, one who could satisfy his aloneness, one who could address the deficiencies in his life. 
no, uh, one who, who could help him do what God had called him to do. And specifically, God had called him to rule over all of creation, or as we see in chapter 2, to cultivate and keep the garden. And his other calling was to be fruitful and multiply, which again would be very hard by himself. And so God provides this helper who would encourage, would enable faithfulness in his calling. So verse 19, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And so again, God named things. Man created in his image could also name things. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And notice the man's reaction. And what he emphasizes is their sameness, their alikeness. The, woman said, or the man said, this is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And in the Hebrew, there's a word play. He says, she shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. And so he's emphasizing the sameness. He, she's bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And so the, the likeness of the man was, to the man was striking in contrast to all these animals that he's been looking at. For this reason, verse 24, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so this is Moses, many generations later, talking about he, he sees the experience of the first couple as a paradigm for marriage. Since the man had these deficiencies, and since the, the, had such deficiencies that the man would leave his parents and form a new union with his wife, and this act of becoming one flesh was a very holistic thing. It referred to emotional and sexual intimacy. His final comment, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so they had no shame. Even though they were unclothed, there was no shame. And this is going to change. We're going to see it in chapter 3. Uh, they, as soon as they sinned, they experienced shame, and they covered themselves, and they hid, and they started blaming others. And so shame and blame is going to be the MO for the human race from there on out. And so uh, these verses establish the foundational relationship between the man, between men and women. They're created out of the same, out of the same material. Though different, they are essentially alike, equally created in the image of God. And in marriage, they leave their parents to form a new family unit. And so this is, this is what we have to understand about the first, one of the things about the first act of creation. Unless we accept this narrative, unless we accept this creation story as the true story, uh, we will adopt another story when it comes to marriage and human sexuality. And as you know, there, there's all sorts of other narratives out there. There are all sorts of other stories that people say, this is actually what explains how, how 
male and female should relate. This is how you should think about marriage. And it's, it's very common for Christians to take, yeah, I'm going to take part of the Bible, but I'm also going to take part of this story. And we have this syncretism, and, and it always brings chaos when we don't accept, accept the full story of Scripture, the full drama of Scripture. It introduces chaos and heartache and confusion into our lives. A couple weeks ago, I reached out to uh, Bob Cochran. A lot of you know him. Bob and his family were, Susan, they were sent out from this church many years ago to be uh, missionaries to Indonesia. They serve with uh, Wycliffe Bible translators. And one of the things they do, it's fascinating, they find these people who have no written language and they do this thing called oral storying where they tell the stories of the Bible in a way that this, this tribe or this people can accept it. And so I asked Bob, I said, Bob, what's the effect of the creation account when people have been following this other, these other stories that their culture tells, and they hear the story of creation found in the Bible? And, uh, and Bob wrote just fascinating things, and I just want to share part of what he, he wrote. And uh, uh, they've seen firsthand the power of of people seeing how they fit into the biblical story. And this is just an example of what knowing the drama of Scripture can mean for our lives. And so Bob wrote this. He said, It has been common among Papuan groups. So he's talking about Papua, Indonesia. It's been common among Papuan groups for women to be viewed as something wholly other than men. In extreme cases... It has even been questioned whether uh, it has been questioned whether women are even human. In other cases, women are assumed to have come from some less noble creative process. For example, I remember one Sawi man telling us that they believe women to have been created from the tail of a dog. And the end result is that women in Papua have frequently been viewed as being different from men somehow or other less valuable, less worthy, not quite up to snuff on the human scale. As a result, men in many Papuan groups have historically related with women much as they would with a piece of property. They have also felt free and justified to use physical violence to punish, cajole, or enforce their will. As a result, we were really struck by the spontaneous response the first time we presented the creation account in story form to the Maya people. We had come to the village of Wasegi expecting maybe 25 or 30 people, but ended up with over 200 folks jammed into a little church building. People squeezed together on the floor, children wiggling in their parents' arms, and faces lined the doorway in the back, straining to hear. And then here's, here's the, the, the fascinating part. He said, after hearing the creation account, they discussed among themselves in small groups what they had learned about God, themselves as humans, as well as how this word should be applied in their lives. As different ones stood up and shared what their group had discussed, various men who were leaders in the community began to stand and earnestly challenge those present that the Maya women really deserved to be treated differently than they had in the past. They noted that the story told how both man and woman were created in God's image, equally valuable, equally wonderful, equally 
of divine origin. Accordingly, they continued, men really need to begin treating their wives differently. They should treat them with love, honor, and respect. And at that note, the whole building erupted into spontaneous applause. And this is classic Bob Cochran. Wow, that's a Copernican revolution for a people group who have had a history of women being bought and sold like property via of a bride price. And so it's powerful when people understand the biblical story, especially the story of creation. And for us, what we've talked about the past couple of weeks, if we understand this first act of the drama of history, we'll understand how God has every right to give us commands and limitations. We'll see how God has given us work it's an, it's an expression of our being created in his image. And we'll understand how men and women should relate to one another. And so live with this this week. Let it form the way you think and feel and speak and act. Next week, we'll begin discussing the fall. If you have the chance, I'd, I'd love it if you would read Genesis 3 before you come next time. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your word. We thank you, God, that you have given us, uh, revealed to us what you've done in creation. You've given us these, these truths about who you are and your design for creation. And God, we're probably at a lot of different places on these issues we've talked about, talked about work and talked about obedience and family life and human sexuality. We pray, God, that we would be formed by the story of the Bible. We would find power and beauty. We would find freedom in it. And so, God, we invite you to teach us what we need to hear, what we need to learn, and uh, give, us, give us the power to obey. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.